name is Charles Stang. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions across the street. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Center's annual Albert and Vera List Lecture in Jewish Studies. Sadly, I have to put the profane before the sacred and ask you all to please oh. silence your cell phones. Thank you. <laughs> if, Andre, if Andre does it, we all are permitted to do it. <clears throat> And before I get too deep into my opening remarks, I'd like to acknowledge and thank uh, the co-sponsors for this evening's event, um, the Center for Jewish Studies, Harvard Hillel, and the Department of Comparative Religion. So it's a privilege to welcome Andre Asimov to Harvard Divinity School and to the Center for the Study of World Religions. He's no stranger to Harvard, of course, having received his MA and PhD from the Department of Comparative Literature. But I thought this might be his first time to, to the Divinity School, in which case I was going to welcome him to the margins of the university. Uh, but he just told me he used to live on Oxford Street, so he, he already has explored the margins. And I'd also like to welcome my dear friend, Benjamin Balint, who has come all the way from Jerusalem to be a part of this evening's event. In just a moment, I'll say more about each of them than they want me to. Uh, but first, let me explain the evening's format. The subtitle of the evening's event and this arrangement here should make clear that the List Lecture will not be a lecture, but rather a conversation between our two guests. Now, why a conversation rather than a lecture? Well, the easy answer to that is that it was the condition uh, under which Andre agreed to come. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, but a, perhaps a better answer is that uh, while all of Andre's writings explore modern Jewish identity in some way, many and many of the themes dearest to that identity, they often explore it in a quiet or implicit manner. That is to say that modern Jewish identity is always at play in Andre's writings, but sometimes that play is light and sometimes that play is quite serious. In any case, it seemed that putting Andre in conversation with a gifted reader such as Ben is might help us all see those threads more clearly, help us see how they weave and wend within a single work of Andre's or indeed across his many works, across genres. I'm confident that a conversation between these two will help elicit and make explicit what I sense is Andre's deep questioning of what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be human in today's world. So now let me turn to, the embarrass to embarrassing our two guests with long introductions. First, Ben Balint. I met Ben seven years ago in Jerusalem and we became fast friends. As I said, he's a brilliant reader and writer and anyone who follows him on Facebook knows he has a wicked sense of humor. He published his first book in 2010, Running Commentary, subtitled the contentious magazine that transformed the Jewish left into the neoconservative right. A book which won for him a few new friends <laughs> and a few new adversaries. And perhaps not surprisingly, it was around that time that Ben moved from New York to Jerusalem. <laughs> Anthony Grafton had this to say of running commentary. So Anthony Grafton read Ben's book. Anthony Grafton doesn't read my books. Uh, never mind blurb them. This is what he said. He said, in this eloquent and richly informed book, Balint both tells the story of commentary as a magazine and reads it as an American Talmud, 
a great mass of position statements and debates, always passionate, sometimes contradictory, that illuminate the larger intellectual history of American Jews. Ben is currently a library fellow at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, and Die Zeit, and his translations of Hebrew poems have appeared in The New Yorker. His most recent book is Kafka's Last Trial, The Case of a Literary Legacy, which offers a gripping account of the controversial trial in Israeli courts that determined the fate of Kafka's manuscripts. And his next book, Jerusalem, City of the Book, will appear in May with Yale University Press. Now, how exactly do I introduce Andre Asimov? <laughs> I could read for you the modest biography he gave us for the purposes of our poster. It reads, Andre Asimov is the author of Enigma Variations, Call Me By Your Name, Out of Egypt, and False Papers, and is the editor of The Proust Project. He teaches comparative literature at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He lives with his wife and family in Manhattan. That's all true, <laughs> as far as we can verify, <laughs> and important. But it says nothing about the searing beauty of his prose, or for that matter, its humor and humanity. It says nothing of how many recent readers have been laid bare by the beauty of Call Me By Your Name, either the novel or the film adaptation, or indeed both. To speak autobiographically for a moment, it says nothing about how Andre's memoir, Out of Egypt, inspired me almost 15 years ago to talk my way through a phalanx of Egyptian security guards and into Alexandria's Eliyahu Hanavi Synagogue, where I then had to convince the Israeli rabbi in Arabic, whose chicken slaughtering I had just interrupted, to let me and my two Jewish friends from the Midwest take an impromptu tour. That was a really good day, uh, <laughs> but that's another story. More seriously now, one reviewer has called Andre a prince of nostalgia. Now, as I'm sure you all know, nostalgia comes from the Greek. <laughs> Nostos meaning a return home, and algos meaning pain or suffering. And certainly that captures some of what is so moving about his writing. The home that haunts everything Andre writes, of course, is Alexandria, the city he and his family were forced to flee under the rule of Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser. In a beautiful essay in his collection, False Papers, Andre speaks of shadow cities, how each city he knows well, New York, Paris, even Cambridge, becomes a sort of shadow of Alexandria how streets and squares here become ciphers for streets and squares there. Except that even Alexandria, in turn, resolves into a shadow, a shadow of a home for which one might painfully pine, but a home to which there is never a triumphant return, a home always elsewhere. There is no Odysseus, no Ithaca in Andre's writings, and that deferral of homecoming is part of what has makes his prose so poignant. If there is a hero, it's not Odysseus, but Anthony, at least as he's captured by that famous poem by Constantine Cavafy, 
Alexandria's most famous poet. In the lines I'm about to read, the poet counsels Anthony on his last night in Alexandria, his adopted city. On the very night, Anthony hears the god Dionysus leaving the city and abandoning him to his fate. This is Cavafy's lines now. Like a man who's all along been ready, like a man made bold by it, in a way fitting the dignity that made you worthy of such a city, approach the window steadily and listen, moved but not needy and disgruntled like a coward. Listen, taking your final pleasure to the sounds, to that music troupe's rare playing and say your last farewell to her to that Alexandria you are leaving. I've heard Alexandrian Greeks recite those lines in Cavafy's own apartment, which now serves as a museum in his honor. I've heard them recite and sway to those lines like Jews davening at the Kotel. Thank you, Andre, for inviting us each to ask after our own Alexandria and for modeling, as Anthony did, a courageous resolve in the face of that loss and a resolve to listen to the music of the God who abandons us. Please join me in welcoming Andre Asiman and Benjamin Balint for this year's List Lecture on Exile and Elsewhere. Thank you. Now we can all leave. <laughs> Charlie, you're so good at this. I want you to commit here and now to blurbing my next book. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Uh, Andre, I thought perhaps we could start actually pre-Alexandria. Your, your family's um, ancestry, your, your family's experience of exile began even before Alexandria, I think. They, they, they left Spain, they went to Italy, from Italy to Turkey, I think. Uh, maybe you could speak about the pre-history, the pre-Alexandria history, and whether that's part of of your own heritage of exile? I think that my family, um, I, I don't think they loved Spain the way it has come down to us. Um, they liked to speak Ladino, which they called Spanish. And no matter how many times I corrected them, they still called it Spanish. Um, they didn't really like Italy much. And they certainly hated Turkey, where they'd been sort of housed for 500 years. Um, so they could have called it their home, but they didn't. And they certainly did not like Alexandria or Egypt either. So essentially, I have a long history of hating every single place they've been to. <laughs> so that is what I inherited as a child. Uh, it was a sense that wherever you are, you're supposed to hate. And, or not like, and certainly don't call it home because it won't last that long anyway. And that has been the experience of my grandparents, of my father, and of course of myself as well. Wherever you call home won't last. And which explains why in Out of Egypt I had one of the characters say something which people quote all the time, though I just made it up along the way. And I said, you know, as Jews you lose everything at least twice in your life. So the story of loss and and the loss that you mourn. In other words, you mourn losing the thing you hated. Mm. So and, and it's that sort of in, incipient little paradox that uh, percolates throughout everything I do. 
Did your father consider himself to be an exile? No, because he had another, he had a citizenship which at the time was called um, stateless. Uh, he was stateless. I mean, he was born in Turkey, so he was a Turk. Uh, but he hated the Turkish language, which he never learned very well because they were all busy learning French and speaking Ladino at home. Um, so he never considered himself a Turk. He never considered himself an Egyptian. He was never, we became Italians by sheer happenstance, but he never considered himself Italian. He didn't even like Italians. So, I mean, the, 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 he, and when he came to America, where he lived for 40 years, uh, he hated America. <laughs> what, what did he like? <laughs> See, this is an unfair question. People ask me that question all the time. What do you like? I hate that food, I hate that cuisine, I hate this, I hate that. What do you like? I don't know. He didn't know what he liked. But, he, he, but that's, I think, part of the problem, is that he started his life and lived his whole life for 93 years and, and taught us to feel the same way. In other words, whatever is given to you is not good enough and is not really sticking. You do not stick to a place, a place does not stick to you. The culture of a place is never yours. So if you are, my father was born Jewish, I was born Jewish, but I was never bar mitzvah. And as far as I know, he was never bar mitzvah because he was busy going to churches. So, uh, and I've gone to more churches than I've gone to synagogues. Um, not out of perversity, it just, just happens that way, you know? And, um, and my grandmother knew the catechism. Why did she know the catechism? Because she was Jewish and she sat in the back of the class while the nuns were teaching. And for years she had to listen to the catechism, so she learned it. Uh, but in essence, nobody felt at home. And that is part of the trajectory that I try to trace in my own life. And, and after, afterwards as well. There's an element uh, or a ground note in, in your memoir out of Egypt, I would say, of dissatisfaction, the dissatisfaction of displacement. Well, you just had reminded me of the old Jewish joke, how do you know that you're in a Jewish restaurant? It's when the waiter comes over to you and says, is anything okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that, that this Jewish dissatisfaction quite well. Uh, I wonder if you, growing up, experienced um, Nasser's Egypt as an anti-Semitic place. On the one hand, you write about Alexandria in the most beguiling way of, uh, as, a, as a polyglot city of many languages. On the other hand, I wonder if you may be, may be able to share with us some of the dark undersides of oh, a uh, polyglot experience. When you, well, when I started school, it was fine. Everything was okay. Everybody was there. There were Italians, Brits, French people. All languages were spoken. Mostly French, though. Everybody knew French. Uh, however, as I was growing older uh, and everybody was being kicked out or was leaving, uh, it became increasingly what it was, Egyptian. It's an Egyptian country. You, everybody is Egyptian. And eventually the, the culture became so dominant that most of the subjects were taught in Arabic. So history, sociology, and geography were taught in Arabic. However, on top of that, uh, all the poems that we had to learn were nationalistic poems. 
and they were all virulently and viciously anti-Semitic. There was absolutely no difference made between Israel and Jewishness. They're, they're totally confused, and it's, if you can think about it, it's a, very con it's a very convenient confusion to make, which I think in England it is made on a daily basis. Uh, confusing Jews, Zionism, Israel, it's all the same thing. Um, but you, became, you, be, you began to realize that um, the atmosphere was against you, and you felt uh, sort of isolated because I was the only Jew in a class of about 25 kids, and every time the word Israel was mentioned, and it was mentioned quite frequently, uh, the whole class would turn and look at me because I was the only Jew. Now, y y you feel this, I, I call it, you know, when I read Dostoevsky, uh, and I've said this before, when I read Dostoevsky, the, the characters of Dostoevsky, when they're cross-examined, they always feel a chill running down their spine. And when I read Dostoevsky, I said, oh God, this is the chill running down the spine thing. Because I recognized it in hindsight that this is exactly what I felt every time the word Jew or Israeli was mentioned in class. You felt it because everybody looks at you. They turn around and they make you very uncomfortable. I mean, who wants to be stigmatized that way? So that, is, that was growing up. And of course, Politically, it was very hard to be Jewish in Egypt, and my father suffered, and we were followed by the police, and there was always a, a series of phone calls, constantly phone calls of people. They were not obscene phone calls, they were sort of harassing phone calls that you knew were coming from the government. They didn't want us there, and I, you know, so eventually they kicked us out, so. So you left in 1965, yes. I think, with your family. And then you came back 30 years later. What was it like to come back to Alexandria after 30 years? Did it feel like a, a homecoming or something else? It, it was, a, uh, for those of you who have gone back to a house that you used to have as a child, and I think most of us have had that experience, it was extremely disappointing. Uh, in other words, I'm back there. Yeah, I recognize the buildings. There is absolutely no, nothing is eloquent enough. In other words, nothing speaks to you as in, remember me, I'm the building where you, whatever happened, okay? There was nothing like that. I recognized the buildings. Uh, and at some point, as I say in the essay, I called my parents up. I said, I'm in Alexandria. I made it safe. And I said, how is it? How is it? How is it? It's Alexandria. That's <laughs> all you can say. And so there was absolutely no thrill of recognition that was not, that wasn't going to happen. And of course, ultimately, very disappointing because for one thing, and most importantly, the people were different because I was used to walking the streets of Alexandria and meeting some people who knew my parents or, you know, people who spoke French or pe people who spoke Greek or whatever, and, or Italian, and suddenly everybody spoke Arabic. And, uh, and so you feel like, what am I doing here? This is not my home. I recognize nothing. I do recognize the buildings. Uh, in fact, they haven't changed. They're uglier than before. Uh, and, and you feel like I, I could leave uh, within, I mean, I did my walk the first night I got to Alexander. I did the walk. It took me about 20 minutes. I was ready to go back. <laughs> Except I was stuck in Alexandria because the, Latin, the next plane was going to leave in five days. So I had to do something with those five days. And there was nothing that basically necessitated my staying more than a few hours. One of my favorite passages in the book is you're in Egypt and you describe being overcome by a sudden yearning for New York of all places, yeah. for West End Avenue. Uh, I'd like to read just a couple of sentences. 
you, you're right there. I was in Alexandria, homesick for a place from which I had learned to recreate Alexandria. The way the rabbis in exile were forced to reinvent their homeland on paper, only to find perhaps that they worship the paper more than the homeland. In this case, would you say New York is the paper? <laughs> is the recreation, I mean? The homeland that's created in the text? No, I think that I moved from one thing to the other, and I'm piling up two metaphors. New York is, used to be like the, the, the overtext, and the subtext is Alexandria. And New York, because I've lived in New York for so long, that I use New York in order to remember Alexandria. But actually, as a writer, and that's where the second metaphor comes in, as a writer, writing about Alexandria makes the writing more special than anything about Alexandria. In fact, I prefer my essay on Alexandria more than I will ever like Alexandria. <laughs> it's better written, first of all. <laughs> Speaking of which, when, did you, when and how did you, did you resolve to write out of Egypt? When did you know that you were going to do this? Uh, it, it's, it's a, I, I, I knew that I, I started writing it when I was a grad student. I began writing a memoir of all my, my, anything I remembered about Alexandria. I put it down on paper. And it was a narrative that began from the first moment to the exile. And, um, and then I reread I re it and I said, oh my god, this is absolutely dreadful. And I, I just put it aside. But people would occasionally say to me, you know, you should write about what it is that you experience in Egypt because of the, the political tension, basically. Write what it was like being a Jew in Alexandria in those years. Um, eventually, I, I met somebody who was an editor, and this is going to surprise you. And I, was, I had just quit smoking, and I wanted to write a guide to how to quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, do you think this is an interesting book? She said, yeah, that would be great. Uh, a book about how to quit smoking from a, pre, you know, a confirmed smoker. That, yeah, why don't you write this book? She said, do you have any other ideas? I said, well, there's this other thing I'm toying with, and it's about writing about my childhood as a Jew. She said, do that. <laughs> <laughs> so the book on cigarette smoking never got written. Something to be looked forward to. Yeah. <clears throat> Before we leave Alexandria, a final question. Uh, how have you sort of superimposed your your mem the Alexandria of your memory on, on other cities that you've subsequently lived in. Have you felt that these other cities are kind of as unreal, as untenable as, as your Alexandria? Um, yes, they are untenable. They are unreal. In other words, the, the disease called Alexandria lost um, afflicts every other city that I know. In other words, every city becomes a city that is about to be lost or that is, in fact, being lost as you're living in it. So you're constantly mourning for something that hasn't even happened yet. Uh, but, of course, I'm very interested in how time sort of morphs and alters itself vis-a-vis -vis this sense of the, the loss that is about to happen and that you foresee with a degree of lucidity that is almost startling because you, you know you won't be here for a long time and so you anticipate the loss. And you, this becomes a form of being in the present. You are in the present provided the present itself is already slipping away from you and you know it is. 
Um, in other words, you learn to anticipate loss even when you are in possession of something. And I do that with cities. I do that with, um, uh, I mean, I, I don't even, you go to a restaurant and you have a fantastic meal. Uh, tomorrow, it's going to be even better as a memory. Uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, but the cities, I mean, for example, I love Paris. And I love, uh, though I can't stay in Paris for too long because then I get annoyed. Uh, and Rome is my favorite city of all cities. But then again, after a month in Rome, you just want to go back to New York. Uh, New York is a place from which you anticipate being in Paris or New York or, or, or Rome. So, I mean, it's all a vicious sort of um, circle, if you want, of, of nothing is permanent. And if I make the mistake of saying that that is a Jewish trait, it's because I believe that this profound sense of either you want to call it um, pre-announced loss or this sense of irony that you bring to everything that is seemingly stable and real. You bring irony and you, you infect it with irony and suddenly it dissipates <coughs> and it becomes something that you will definitely lose. I want to ask you about this idea of return. Before we get to exile, I want to get to exile slightly obliquely with your permission. Um, you, you write, um, the Jewish rite of passage, as Passover never tells us, is also a passage back to Egypt, not just away from it. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in how the, the theme of return, or even return to something that no longer exists, informs your sensibility. I want to put the question in another way if I can. I was thinking uh, about the biblical figure of Abraham. Abraham, of course, heeds the call of God and leaves his own land to journey to a foreign one. Unlike Odysseus, Abraham does not return home. Why is that? Oh, why doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> well, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that the, I mean, Moses never, never even goes home. Okay, um, Abraham never returns home in my book, in my vision, because he's going to find it extremely disappointing. And uh, the people who came back from the Babylonian captivity, I still need to know exactly what they're. Uh, chronicle is what they what what they felt when they came back to this thing that they were longing for, for how many years? Hundreds of years was it? Uh, so th there's a sense of the return itself. The return is is your rendezvous with fate. This is where you are going to be. This is where your life your life means something if you eventually will return home. Uh, but as Kavafi himself has us know. Uh, Odysseus um, returns um, a disappointed man. I mean, he's learned a lot because of the voyages. The return home is incidental. And as we all know from Homer, the next thing that Odysseus will do, as he knows he will do, is leave. Um, in my book, in Out of Egypt, there's a little poem that I attribute to Kavafi which poor Kavafi never wrote because he couldn't write this badly. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a poem about Odysseus who decides that, you know, Calypso is a very nice woman. And, and she is giving him immortality in the bargain. And if you stay here, you'll never die. You'll, be, you'll live forever. And we're in love and we're happy. 
and Odysseus is tempted. And I think in my version, he decides, okay, I'm gonna stay here. This is a good enough deal. The rest, the going back home, is definitely going to be disappointing. So returns are, they're nice in books, where you have the hero returning home to visit his whatever, uh, or visiting the house, the famous house, you know, Brights had revisited uh, Howard's End, all these wonderful mansions that have their homes to which you need to return and you're pulled to return. In, in fact, they are always disappointing, and you always leave them. I'd like to ask about how the fault lines of exile run through your writing. Um, and something you just said uh, strikes me as very significant. I think there's, there's a distinction in, in your writing between exile as reality, as lived experience, and exile, literary exile, that is exile maybe you might say as metaphor. Right. So I'd like to embarrass you again by quoting another one of your essays. You say, expatriation, like love, is not only a condition that devastates and reconfigures the self, it is like love, a trope, a figure with which we try to explain, to narrate profound psychological disruptions in terms of very measurable entities, a person, a place, an event, a moment. <clears throat> I was struck that particularly after, let's say, the Second World War, um, Jewish exile has, has been subject to a kind of dichotomy mm. in thinking, either negative or positive. Either as, um, let's say, the real exile is quite negative, it's a source of suffering, you might say, of punishment, humiliation, powerlessness. But then, metaphorically or in, in the literary lens, it often appears in a quite positive way, as an exemplary instance of anti-nationalism. I detect some of this in, in Out of Egypt, too. Or as an antidote to the so-called blood and soil ideologies. Are we stuck in that kind of dichotomy of the real versus the, the metaphorical exile? Um, can we escape that? Is there a third term? How do you think about the, the real versus the, or the, the experience of exile? and its use as a metaphor in a quite positive way, um, as a noble rootlessness. I, I don't think I've ever written about it as a noble, uh, in other words, it does not, it, there's nothing triumphal about exile, and it's not a sense that it's something that ennobles you. Uh, if anything, it's the other way around. But to begin with, exile, the, the notion of exile is not a willful act of displacement, of immigration, of emigration elsewhere. Exile, by definition, is something that is foisted on you, you're forced to do it, you're, you're forced to lose whatever it is you have in order, and you have no choice. It is taken away from you, so you're pushed out. So in many respects, you can never say that Odysseus is in exile. Uh, in other words, he's just coming back home and it's taking him too long. Okay, uh, just to look at things as the way I mean, Maybe he wants it to take too long because Penelope is troubled too. Uh, um, however, I'm just making this joke, unfortunately. Uh, uh, the, 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 other, the other thing about exile is that in my case, it has, it has become a very sort of seminal way of understanding anything. In other words, the, the fact that you are losing 
sometimes against your will, a place or a style of life or a partner or whatever it is. In other words, yeah, that you are dislodged, the, the way that certain uh, electrons can be dislodged or planets are dislodged from their orbit. Suddenly you find yourself flailing around and you, you need to re-find some sort of order because you're not dead yet. So you have to adapt to this dislodgement. And, but the dislodgement for me, is, it's not a pleasure, but it is a position from which I can only write. In other words, I, I can write only from dislodgement. In other words, if something is uh, sort of sequential or consecutive or if everything is rooted, I have nothing to tell you. And the way I realized this is um, I was once um, asked to write a piece on a particular square in Paris. And so I went to the square in Paris. It's the Place des Vosges, for those of you who know it. It's a beautiful square. It has a long history that is fascinating. And I went and studied every single building on the square. Each one has a fantastic history. And I ate at every single restaurant in the thing because I had to also create a travel box for which restaurant to avoid and which to go to. And I, I did all the studying for all that. But I also wanted to write about what it felt like to be in that square. So I couldn't write it. Essentially, I had to come back to New York. And from longing to be back there, to take better notes, because I'm always sloppy, and longing to be back and re revisit it just because I didn't do a thorough search, I didn't do a thorough visit. The, the very fact that I needed to go back that I needed to write of Place des Vosges as something that happened to me and then was taken away, produced the kind of essay that I didn't know I wanted to write. But, and I realized this happens every single time. I used to be a travel writer. And so whenever I, I, I write, I need to basically not write in the place itself, but having lost the place. In other words, looking at it retrospectively as something that happened and that has become like a vision, a cloud that is about soon about to dissipate. And uh, that's the only way I can write. So whenever I write about love, it's the same way. You seem to be speaking about loss as, um, as something that enhances your own vision of things, that clarifies your own vision of things, even as a necessary ingredient. Right. Let, me, let me, with that, pull us back to the idea of Jewish exile as somehow the embodiment of a kind of uh, heroic homelessness that corresponds to the human condition as such. There are people who speak in these terms, right? Right. Are you sympathetic at all to this, to this idea? No. <laughs> no, because I don't think there's anything heroic about homelessness. Um, I think it's a painful thing. It's, it's, uh, it's something to be avoided. On the other hand, because there's always another hand. Uh, I have taught my children one thing that um, they have to cultivate, and they have it. In other words, it's there. Uh, not that I did it intentionally, but by being in my presence. They always have irony as a way of living. In other words, for me, irony is perhaps the most powerful uh, motive for anything we do. It, it sets us in motion as opposed to forces us to withdraw. It gives us two faces, two texts, two ways of seeing something that uh, do not necessarily 
coincide. They're just antagonistically present at the same time. And that is more or less where I come from. So to turn homelessness into something that's triumphal or heroic or transcendental, to use that term, um, doesn't work for me. It, it, I, I can understand that some people feel this way, and, um, but I don't understand them. When I was working on my, on my own book, I came across a wonderful essay by Judith Butler. It's called Who Owns Kafka? And there she says that the exilic is proper to Judaism and even to Jewishness as such. And she does so in the context of correlating Kafka's mode of writing um, as a kind of poetics of non-arrival. Mm. And that's what I keep coming back to, is whether, as a writer, this is a this non-arrival, you might say alienation, you might say obsession with loss, um, is a necessary ingredient of, of your... Um, it, it, it's maybe, it is, I don't know if it's necessary, but it happens to be, or incidentally, it's always there. In other words, the, the inability to arrive home, the, maybe if you want, the reluctance to come home is not, it's there, it's always present. I don't start writing by saying, this character must never make it home. But I find that I find every kind of impediment to his arrival. Uh, and, and in fact, I mean, it makes perfect sense since I wrote a book which has not met any success whatsoever. It's called Eight White Nights, and it's about a couple that meets at a party, and they are totally, I think, attracted to each other. And there's clearly, they, the, there's the only thing they need to do is to go to bed together, but they meet each other at the movies every night. They have a drink together. They have dinner together but they, he deposits her at home every, every single time. And it's clear that I'm trying to make this last longer than it's possible. And people, of course, have written to me, said, come on already, it's the fifth night. <laughs> How many more nights do they have to go? Eight, I say. Oh, God, this is terrible, you know, make it happen. Uh, so of course, I was having a great deal of fun in <laughs> dilating the abeyance of the actual night in which they will sleep. And when it happens, I don't let you know that it has. So <laughs> <laughs> I realize that there are other ways of doing these things. And <laughs> usually when you resort to fruit, it becomes much more. <laughs> is, is, speaking of which, is deferral, delay, is yeah. that important to you? Yes. De so? Deferral, because um, deferral in, in psychological terms for me, is the avoidance of the fact, of truth, of arrival, of now we have to contend with things as they are. When you defer, you avoid um, being in the here and now. And the here and now, because of exile, if you can say, or the condition that is foisted by exile, uh, deferral is becomes a home. So that your home, as the, the poet says in, in my poem, uh, you know, your home is in the rubble house of time. Uh, you, you, you just don't have a home in time. It is outside of time that you have. And that explains why my next book is a collection of essays on the conditional, the subjunctive, and the optative, because those are my moods. Those are 
the, the moods in which I write. In other words, the might have been that never happened, but might still happen, though you fear it might not, and hope it does. So you're just, where are we? We're nowhere. Can you share with us a bit more about this next book we were talking about earlier? It's called Homo Irrealis. Yes. What's the unreality that you're getting at? What, how, who do you treat in this book, and, and how do you? Oh. Uh, how do you approach? They're all subjects? series of essays. One is on Freud. Two are on Freud. One is on Cavafy. One is on Proust. One is on Zibalt, who is a writer that I think is far more important than we give him credit for. And there are other characters, which are, one is on Eric Romer, the film director, where sex does not happen, okay? For those of you who need to know. Um, <laughs> um, very inspiring uh, film director for me. Um, and these are all character, writers who, or whatever it is, movie directors, painters, John Sloan is another one. People who essentially are, are, are tussling with the present. They're not happy with the present. They're looking for another tense. And the tense they're looking for is not in the past, though that is the thing that is easiest to believe. And it's not in the future, nor is it in the future that is being anticipated and is going to be looked at as a thing in the past once it happens. It is really a different, uh, it's not a tense, it's a mood. It's elsewhere. It's in another dimension of time. Or as I like to say, elsewhere in time. And I think that uh, most of us, and this is where you can all disagree with me and call me an idiot, uh, is I think most of us live in our fantasies. And our fantasies are not any, have anything to do with reality. They are, might have been moments in your life that you kind of wish might happen, but you hope they don't. <laughs> uh, and that is where we live. We live there. That's, that, that's certainly I do. Uh, not all together, because I have a family and I love my children and I like to eat lasagna, okay? <laughs> but th that has nothing to do with it. And as a writer, when I retreat into my hovel and I write, I am really in a different zone. It's a totally different area where I'm really struggling with the other life, the other dimension, the one that is also being lived but not quite and that you don't really want it to happen. As I'm hearing you talking, I'm wondering if exile can be understood also as a kind of escapist fantasy. That is, someone who doesn't live in exile has responsibilities not shared by the exile, by definition. Yes. Someone who is not in exile maybe has a different relationship with the present tense and the obligations of the present tense than an exile who lives in someone else's country and defers to someone else's rules. Is that? Yes. That's, I mean, that is a wonderful explanation. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I do believe that, in a sense, people who are in the, what I call the here and now and have obligations in daily life, which we all do, by the way. It's not that we live in a fantasy world. Um, they have obligations, and those obligations do not permit them to stray and look elsewhere. Whereas the exile, who is having trouble with the present or doesn't quite adapt to the present, always has the perfect excuse, well, I'm not really from here. Mm. I'm not really one who eats this kind of food. Uh, I'm not, I, don't sp I don't speak English good, as they say, <laughs> okay? because it's not my language. That you can make up all kinds of excuses to justify a the inability to adapt into the present. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's, I don't know if that's a Jewish trait, to be honest. I, I don't think it is. 
Is there something particularly Jewish about, about your understanding of exile? Something that is particular to Jewish exile that characterizes it in a way that um, separates it from other kinds of exile? Well, I, I'm not familiar with others. So, I'm, I'm, I mean, there's a dia every nation has a diasporic narrative. Uh, I'm not familiar, I mean, I don't understand it. I understand only my own. And it happens that mine is so easily inscribed into the Jewish tradition that I have to say that because I suffered for being a Jew, I am automatically uh, affiliated to the, to the kind of Jewish exile that exists. But I think, as I think you know, um, as everybody knows, the, the, the fact that Abraham was in, enjoined to leave his land means that whatever land he was going to settle in was never going to be his land. His land was left behind. And I love, somebody once told me this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the, the very etymology of the word Hebrew means the, those from the other bank. And I always live my life as if, and I see my life, I don't live it that way, but I see it as basically this, I'm the version that's across the bank. The real version is on the other side of the river. And that's where real life happens. And mine is just a rough draft, a mock copy of the thing that is supposed to happen. Of course, you, you never know what the real life is. Um, and as I like to say, and I've had one of my characters say, uh, we are given two lives. One is the one that we sort of experiment with. The other one is the better one, and that's going to come next. One of my favorite stories about exile and homeland, or diaspora and homeland, is one that Saul Bellow tells, where he goes to Jerusalem in the early 70s. His first meeting is with Shai Agnon, who in 1966 shared the Nobel. And he goes to Agnon's house, and Agnon says, I only have one question for you. And that is, have your novels been translated into Hebrew? And Bello says, why, oh, that's a strange, I mean, why such a small, insignificant language? I, I don't know, I don't think so. And Agnon says, only if they've been translated into Hebrew do they stand a chance of achieving immortality. <laughs> that's the perfect encapsulation of the relationship that Agnon, as a minority writer, had to, uh, in this case, the diaspora, or someone he saw as a diaspora writer. Uh, yeah, I'm translated into Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> You're safe then. You're safe. Uh, I'm safe. Well, I mean, it does make Hebrew the language. Again, I think that Hebrew is a language I never learned. Um, and maybe was sort of testily refusing to learn. Um, however, um, the fact that Hebrew is a language, it is the language of God. God speaks in Hebrew. And that language is not given to me. And uh, so I, I sort of banish myself from that. So I'm not only a Jew who lives across the river, but I'm also a Jew who lives out of the fold of those who live across the river. So I'm twice removed. And uh, I kind of consolidate my condition of double exile, which I think is, is another typically Jewish thing, is that you're always in double exile, not single exile. There are serial exiles behind you. Yeah, I guess one of the questions in that case is, can one write in a non-Hebrew language in a way that makes that language a Jewish language? Can you write in English in such a way 
as to transform English into a Jewish language through sheer force of, of style and sensibility. But Maybe we'll leave that for a hypothetical. It is totally hypothetical since I don't know Hebrew and I couldn't answer that, that question. <laughs> I think with, uh, with the permission of Charles, we can open it up um, to your questions. Um, we'd be happy to... So I thought I, I'll, I'll call on people so as to relieve you two of that burden. Okay. We have um, microphones going around. Oh, uh, wow. So if you would, if you would wait to, until uh, a microphone makes its way to you. But can I, can I take the, uh, the opportunity to ask the first question? Uh, oh, I'm going to. <laughs> um, uh, you, you mentioned Agnon in Jerusalem. Andre, it, so much of your, um, all of your uh, ruminations about exile and, and homecoming are around the city of Alexandria, of course. Um, the silence around Jerusalem strikes me. Um, obviously, it's not a city you've lived in. It's not a city you know well. But is your silence on Jerusalem and the wrought rumination on exile and homecoming around the state of Israel, whether prior to the state, just the, 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 the Israel as a concept, even right. before nation state, is that deliberate? Or, or is there a reason why you stay away from that rhetoric? Why no talk? Is it a rebuke to those who think that they can find a home in a city like Jerusalem? No, it's no, no rebuke at all because mm. I do believe in the existence of Israel and I do think that it is the homeland of Jews, so period. So I'm not going to quibble on that one. Um, in Out of Egypt, there's a scene that was kind of intentional um, where the boy, I, uh, is facing the sea and he says, this is the land of S Spain, uh, France is over there, Italy's there, and here is the land of Solon and Pericles, as he calls it, in other ancient Greece, which is really my love. I've always loved ancient Greece. Um, and, and he stops. He doesn't go any further uh, east to say, because I didn't want to get into it. Uh, I preferred the oblique, the oblique, and it is an oblique absence, but it is intentional. I didn't want um, the question to come up um, as, oh, of course, he included Palestine or Israel or whatever you want to call it, uh, in that sort of mix of various possibilities that are out there. It was never in my father's plans that we should move to Israel. Nobody in my family has ever gone to Israel, which is, it, it's a contradiction in terms because one of my uncles was studying Syriac and all kinds of other languages and Hebrew, of course, which he knew. They all knew Hebrew perfectly. Uh, and he, he wanted to sort of die in Israel, uh, but he never made it. Uh, otherwise, everybody was thinking France, maybe Italy, England. Uh, these were the possibilities that were open. Uh, when you're in Egypt, you're thinking where to go. The other thing is that you could never go directly from Egypt to Israel. You had to go either to Italy first or to Libya which for some reason, in those days, you, could, you flew to Libya, and then from Libya you flew to Tel Aviv. Uh, but we never were thinking of, of uh, basically, even as refugees, we never opted to go to Israel. Okay, thank you. All right, questions, please. Yes, Terry. Andrew, you speak of loss and 
disappointment um, and being dislodged. I'm wondering what place does grief hold for you? What place? What place does grief hold for you within loss, disappointment, and being dislodged? And where does grief live in exile? You know, it's very strange. I have no grief. Uh, I mean, I'm not sad that I don't have a country. Um, um, I don't, I mean, I envy people who are nationalistic or patriotic. I envy people who belong to this church but would never go to that church or to this synagogue and not that synagogue. I, I envy people who have that kind of rootedness but I envy it for only five seconds because then I say, oh my God, that's horrible. Uh, uh, I, 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 people who worship flags, their own flag. Uh, gosh, I mean, I could never understand that. Well, flag is a piece of cloth. Uh, Americans take their flag very seriously. Uh, I never liked flags. Uh, I mean, it, it, that's where it is. So I don't have a sense of grief for being out of, the, out of place. I live in New York City, and I, th I call myself a very, basically, an unhinged person. Uh, but where else can you live if you're unhinged except in New York City? Uh, I mean, New York is a place where anything goes, any nationality, any religion, any sort of, any orientation is accepted. Everything is accepted because nobody cares. Uh, and I like that. That's the only place where I can really live. Now, is New York then my home? No. Uh, but it's the only place where I can live. So I, I live somewhere, but I don't call it home. On the other hand, to turn things around, if you ask me where did I want to be buried, because where you're buried has symbolic value on your life as you're living it now, and I don't have an answer. I don't want to be buried near, near my parents. They're in, in sort of upstate New York. I don't want to be buried where my grandfather is in Egypt. I don't want to be buried in Turkey. I don't know if I'm going to be buried at all. <laughs> I mean, you, you see what I'm trying to say, is that basically the, the sense of dislodgement is so profound that you live with it, but you don't, you don't miss what it is that it has taken away from you. Yes, Janet. Uh, thanks for calling, oh. Amik. So I just wanted to follow up on that very interesting question and also your interesting answer that you don't have grief and I, I'll say I wasn't surprised at the answer but that leads me to want to push the question that you were getting that you were resisting was giving some sort of positive valence to exile and mm. I, it might be the case Her heroic probably is not the right word. It's not heroic. But there's some, you know, somehow the irony or the loss or the inherent exilic condition is what allows one to live in a certain, there's a certain positive, it's a, it's a certain kind of virtue. And maybe, you know, part of it could be creativity, part of it is the irony and the humor that is very, you know, specifically Jewish in some types of ways, that somehow one could be a master of that in-between unfinished place that actually protects you from grief. Oh, uh, yeah. what protects me from grief, to, to take you at the very last 
thing that you've said. What protects me from grief is writing about exile. In other words, the more I write about it, and I can't stop writing about any kind of loss, the more I write about it, the more I feel confirmed in my hopes of, of leading a normal life. Um, in other words, from, and that's why I call paper false papers. That's the title of one of my books. It's false papers because whatever they say is going to be not really true. So the, the virtue of paper that I trust is at the same time taken away from me by me. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Okay, um, that's, that's part of the, 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 the situation that I'm in. So uh, maybe writing is a way of obviating the grief, if you wish. Um, on the other hand, I have a brother who never read, I mean, he's far more uh, secular in his, sort of, he's not a particularly spiritual person, uh, but he's having a, he had, and he's still having a lot of trouble adapting to America. Uh, whereas I have found a way to adapt to America by writing about how I'm not adapting to America. Okay, to, 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 but that again is it's because I'm so ironic that I find a virtue, even a heroism in anything I say that is seemingly ironic. In other words, irony for me and paradox, which is sort of the distant cousin of irony, is how I establish myself and find a home that is built with nothing, you know, because it is nothing. But I, I go through the motions of building with words knowing that words are not going to build anything, but it, gives, it, it puts a, a screen between me and the here and now, and the present that I don't believe, that I don't belong to. Uh, so that writing, as I say, is, is also an escape valve, and it's also the real, it's, if you cannot be a good enough writer and not realize that writing is not going to bring you the kind of joys you imagine that paper can bring. You know, a good writer is aware that this is all make-believe, guys. It's fiction. Except that you also know that you have to also hope that it isn't fiction as far as Well, if you're, if you're superstitious the way I am, you can never admit to that. <laughs> okay, because superstitious people, as you know, can never tell you or expose their entire superstitions to you because they'll backfire. Okay? Okay? So... <laughs> Yes, in the white back there. Thank you for so much for speaking. Um, I'm wondering if the dislodgement that you spoke about truly makes you feel that you have a home nowhere, or if it actually creates a sense of having a community that is the world at large. Um, I'm lucky, despite my personality, to have many friends. And um, I'm lucky because that is really how I begin to um, sense that, oh my God. Uh, because and whenever I travel anywhere, and I hate traveling, as some of you know, uh, whenever I travel, I don't travel to see new things. I travel to see if I could possibly live in this place. I mean, that's my automatic default. I love Barcelona, but I can't live there. It's ridiculous, okay. Um, <laughs> So, but that's how I travel. So in, in many respects, and if I see a beautiful villa and I say to my wife, you know, we should think of maybe buying
tefillah. And then and, and she says, yeah, that would be a terrific idea. Of course, we don't have the money, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the fact is that we fantasize about the villa. And then I say, yes, but who's going to come to this villa? Who's gonna be, whom can we invite? We don't know anybody here. Whereas in New York, we know people, and we like the people who come to dinner at our house, and we like going to their houses, too. So it ends up being that people, more than place, nation, city, country, whatever, is what makes you feel sometimes at home. Sometimes at home. Of course, when the guests leave, you say, oh my god, they're all boring. <laughs> yes, you. Thank you for this talk. Um, you mentioned how integral to the story the absence of desire was for in Eight White Nights. Um, in looking at Call Me By Your Name, I'd say it's a little more prevalent, that desire is a little more um, real. So I just wonder how, what the shift was there and then why it's important, um, why the presence of desire and the acts of desire is so important in Call Me By Your Name. And why it's not in the other And why book. it's not in the other uh, because they're different books. Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, no, I'm just playing with you. Uh, uh, no, the question is a very good one because, um, of course, as, as we all know, you don't have to be 17 in order to feel powerful desire. You can feel powerful desire at the age of 90. Uh, I know because my father was 90 and he was, had to be kept in control. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I don't mean just, it was not just a metaphor, okay? Uh, <laughs> however, uh, and I do feel desire. I mean, it's something that's very real. So I, I, like, I like to pretend that I was above desire, that I can, can master my desire and not sort of give in to it. And let this other thing, which I do value, the romance that sort of exists between two individuals who have met, and who basically turn out to find out, each finds out, that they like each other. This is a wonderful thing, and it's so wonderful that sometimes you will, in a man's case, you will drop the girl in her house and not ask to come upstairs, because you like what this is, and we'll do it tomorrow again, and we'll do it the next day after that as well, because it's not just deferral, it's that you're deferring because there is a small satisfaction. Um, if you're 14, you want to consummate the act right away. When you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you know you've done it many times, and you want this other luxury to exist. And I believe in that. On the other hand, when I wrote Call Me By Your Name, or Enigma, whatever, uh, I've, I was stirred in a different direction, in the direction of, you know, desire is wonderful, and consummation is also wonderful. So let's go there. <laughs> Leila. Leila here. No, Ariel was right here. Leila. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for an absolutely fabulous talk. Um, and let me say um, that I'm speaking as an Egyptian. I'm very sorry you went through what you went through in Egypt. Uh, I too had to leave Egypt, obviously, for completely different reasons. But uh, so what I'm going to say now, I mean as a compliment, I'm not sure you will take as a compliment, which is that you're just listening to you has made me homesick because in some way, even in the timbre of your voice and your accent reminds me of Egypt. So um, you're bringing, making me 
giving me a new kind of homesickness. So thank you, and I, again, I apologize for what happened. I know very well how awful the Nasser era was. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I think I, I'm, I mean, people will say, I'm very Mediterranean in many respects, but I'm also very, I'm not Egyptian, but I'm very Alexandrian. And um, it turns out that whatever my training has been as a writer, uh, it has always been to seek that particular timber in, in my voice, to, to find exactly what it is that how people spoke, how people felt, how people insulted each other. That was also very important. And how, how complex their value system was. And when you, when you try to recapture all that in one book, um, you, you, you don't invent it, you retrieve it. And, and you retrieve it with the things that people always compliment me with. Is that the smell of the foods, or the, the taste of this, the, the sound of that, the feel of this, and so on. Those are easy ones. The, the ones that you're reacting to are the, it's the other side of Alexandria. It, particularly, were you from Alexandria or Cairo? I lived in both. Actually. You lived in both, okay. Well, Alexandria had a particular flavor to it. And, uh, and it was, when I was growing up, it was a very Greek city because that was the population that had stayed the most. And so you learned to speak to them and they were wonderful, the Greeks. But at the same time, there was so much to make fun of in the Greeks, which I love to do. I make fun of everybody. Uh, I mean, I, the, the ones that I, we love to make fun of and are the Armenians for some reason because they were close friends. We had many Armenian friends, but they spoke in a funny way. Armenians always put the verb at the end of the sentence. So, um, and my grandmother hated when they did that in French. So she would make fun of them. And I made fun of them because I heard her do that. I mean, you can go on forever. There's a whole vision of reality that is very specific to that place. Yes, I'm sorry. Hi, thank you. Um, so I was thinking a little bit about exile as a metaphor, and I know that you're a big Proust scholar, and so I was thinking a little bit, and it's, tell me if it's stretching it too much, to think that like, our early selves and our early memories are all a place that we can never return to, and he spends a lot of time trying to re go back to that place or get that place back, but it's really the process of recreating or refinding and the making and the writing where he's alive, because I mean, his childhood we even know as readers, he was always anxious, he was always disoriented. We don't really want to go back to that place, but we want to recreate it through the writing process. I just didn't know if you thought at all about Proust as you were thinking about exile. Yes, I mean, Proust wrote about Combray, and he invented the town. I mean, basically, there's Madeleine's, now you walk in Combray, which I had to visit, uh, you walk in Combray and you find every kind of baker, That's the, they don't even sell bread anymore, they sell Madeleine's. Okay, which, which is a bit silly, because Proust started not writing about Madeleine, but about toasted bread. So, but it doesn't matter whether Proust wanted to go back. He never really liked Combray. Uh, he, but he, he had lost Combray, or he thought he had lost Combray, and there was something he longed for in Combray. Now, I have a theory. Um, Proust was, uh, was told once that he was going to visit as a child. He was going to be taken by his parents, and particularly his mother and grandmother. And they were going to take him to Venice. And he was very, very excited by the trip to Venice. 
to the point where he developed a kind of asthma uh, response. He was asthmatic throughout his whole life, but he had sort of anxiety over the fact that he was going to go to Venice. He was so happy that he was going to go to Venice. So that Venice was this lodestar, this thing that he was going to arrive at and was going to make his life finally meaningful as a child. Except that he couldn't go to Venice because he was sick. And so he ended up being taken to his aunt's house, or an uncle in some cases, people will say, in the house which was in Ilier and became Combray. So that, in fact, the longing for the house in Combray is a false longing. It's the longing for the anticipation of Venice. Mm. So that when he finally goes to Venice, okay, it's not a homecoming. It's almost an experience where he's with his mom, he's in Venice, he's in the Hotel Daniele, it's a very nice hotel, and basically it's not answering any of his questions. He wants to go back to Combray. So it's a, it's, it's a vicious circle, yet again, you know, sort of a tautological way of living one's life. There is no home, there is no ultimate point of return. All you have is one place sort of referring you to the next and referring it to the other and then to the, the first one again. And, um, and that's what happens to me. Uh, I go to, there's a place, and I wrote about this, I, there's a place on Broadway where, on 104th Street, where that sells falafel. When I walk by there, I smell falafel, and I'm right away, if it's a warm day in the summer, I'm at the beach with my mother, we're going to buy a falafel sandwich, I am home. Now, I'm in Egypt at some point, I go back to Egypt, because the New York Times wanted me to write a piece, and I smell falafel, and right away, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of New York. <laughs> I want to eat a sandwich there, not in Egypt. So basically, where do I belong? I don't know. Uh, I, I thought I had the answer. Falafel equals Egypt. You eat, go to Egypt, you smell falafel, and you say, oh, New York. So, and, but of course, since I lived in many places in my life, and they were all moments of exile, each one, Paris and Rome, and then New York, so I'm constantly sort of shuttling from one to the other, constantly, to the point where clearly I don't have any one of those as my home, but I play, or at least I'm forced to think I'm playing, of moving from one to the other. Yes, back. Um, Just wait for the mic, please. Thank you. Thank you on all counts. By the way, a minor point of information, actually, in the Hebrew Bible, um, it says when the exiles return from Babylon, they rebuild the second temple, and the older returnees see that it's nothing like the first, and they start <laughs> weeping. And that's so there's ample precedent. Um, I'd like to, but they say, well, but here we are. You know. um, I'd like to pick up on something you were saying that in the here and now there are responsibilities, right? So in the here and now, where one is a a parent, a teacher, a colleague, a friend and moral responsibilities come to life therefrom. What are the ethics of exile? Right? The ethical life that you're describing there is one in which there's a here and now, and the, um, to use a really dreadful word, almost the ontology that you're conjuring up very powerfully of exile sort of goes on holiday, so ethics can happen. But I would 
guess that I'm misreading it there, right? And so what sort of ethical commitment, responsibility, take an understanding of what responsibility is, emerges from exile because to the extent to which it's an experience of suffering and loss, it, it automatically elicits the idea, the, the notion of remedying that suffering and loss in oneself and, and others. So does exile create its own kind of ethics? Yes, um, as you said, to begin with the first part, the, the commitment to the here and now never goes away. I mean, you could be as exilic as you want to be, to use that horrible word. Uh, you still have commitments. You have a job, you have parenting to do, you have responsibilities, and you observe them all together. But the one word, and I think Joyce is, as usual, he's such a genius, the word he uses is disloyalty. That the condition of exile foists disloyalty in yourself. So you're not necessarily disloyal, but you see yourself as fundamentally disloyal. You're disloyal to the flag that you swore allegiance to. I swore allegiance to the flag when I became an, an American citizen. But I don't believe that I really meant it. Now, I might have meant it, I don't know. The fact that I don't know whether I meant it or not, meant it or not, is already part of the problem. Uh, you have a condition of disloyalty. You don't quite commit to the here and now that you know you are committed to. See, the both conditions coexist. So there is an ethical problem of being fundamentally, you being, you're cheating on your own life and on the life of others. And you're aware of that. And you're constantly walking around with the guilty conscience of the person who is constantly thinking, I belong on the other bank or on the other, in another place. I don't really belong here. So I live on 109th Street in Manhattan. Okay? But could that 109 be my home, my, my, um, my end point in life? Could that be it? My parents died at a number 765 Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, both of them died in the same house. I, they could have killed each other the way they were married, but that's a different <laughs> issue. Uh, but they, they, they both died in a place that had a number that made absolutely no sense to them. It, it could not possibly have resonated with all the baggage that they brought with them when they moved to 765 Amsterdam Avenue. And I live on 109th Street. And could that dignify all the issues that I bring? No. But that's what I have. That's where I live. That's my home. That's where my family is. And I, and I adore my family. Uh, so, and I'm ex on top of everything, I'm very grateful that I'm on 109th Street. And you give me any other apartment in, on the west side, and I would say, no, no, no. I live in a great place. And I do. So the, the ethical condition is sort of a, a conundrum. And I cannot answer it. Let's take just one more question. Yes, sir. Hello. Uh, I'm a freshman here. My name's Derek, and I, I want to thank you again for speaking. Um, you know, I'm just very taken with your whole sort of idea um, that the idea of a past or the idea of these um, sort of looking back to the past and nostalgia, you know, I think are distinctly human mechanisms. Um, 
I don't know. I, in reading, I one of the novels I've read of yours is Call Me by Your Name, and and from that from that novel, I, I really got a sense for the sort of transformative power of nature, um, and sort of how humans exist in nature, and sort of and I don't know. Just hearing your talk right now about you know looking at the past and looking at nostalgia, and if we really exist to any one place, would you consider um, the idea of a past to be a, a human invention? Um, as we exist in nature, there's no idea of sentiment. So is, 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 that, is the idea of sentiment looking at the past, is that something humans have created? And if we look at experience in nature, does that exist? And, um, and if so, why have we created that? And what, is that something we need? Does that make any sense? Um, I'm trying to make sense of it. Okay. <laughs> because you're saying something, you're saying sentiment, but I think what you don't mean feeling, you mean sentimentalism. Yes, sentimentalism. Okay. As in looking back on the past and and, and sort of what? Enriching the past with beyond its capacity to be enriched, sort of making too much of the past. Mm -hmm. when and and f having a need to feel tied down to the past and your own, you know, sentimentality, your own nostalgia. Um, you, know, you know, having... I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult, you're asking me a difficult question because there is the writer who wrote the novel is one person and the person who's speaking to you now is a totally different person. Um, that's something that, you know, we try to resist accepting, but it, it's a fact. Um, the writer uh, is writing about a past experience, alleged past experience that happened and that he's trying to recover and that changed him forever, and that he misses the person that he was in love with, so on and so forth. Um, on the other hand, the person I am speaking to you today is really a person who is very at home with the condition of missing the past. Uh, in other words, I've taken a past that I miss and have transposed it on a sort of amorous sort of scale. On the other hand, I have lost people in my life, people that I was in love with, um, and I might still be in love with. In other words, you, you never stop being in love with people unless you really want to because you need to hate them, otherwise you're going to live with yourself, okay? Um, but I, there, there are people that I, I'm still in love with and will always be in love with, uh, but that I cannot have and don't want to have. This is because there are... I mean, you, when you get to be my age, you begin to be a bit wiser and at the same time a bit more cynical about love. Um, doesn't mean that I don't feel it. Um, but I, I, I'm sort of circling around your question because I didn't quite get what the question is. What, the, what, what is the trouble that you're s s sort of s picking up? Well, I would, sorry. I would, <laughs> um. I was just wondering if, if, if you thought, why do you think humans need the, uh, have a need to be tied down to a past, to a family, to oh. feelings of, uh, to sentiments of, a, of a, something that has already passed? To something past? Um, we don't need to. I don't know that we need to. I think we automatically do it. So probably it fulfills some kind of purpose. It tells us who we are. Uh, we are ourselves sort of the incubators of everything that happened to us in the past. Uh, and we continue to, some of us even cuddle 
what it is that we had in the past because it was pleasurable or it pained us but we can't quite resolve it so we still sort of carry it with us until the very end. There's many reasons why we don't let go of the past. Do we need to be tied to the past? I don't know. That's beyond my competence. Well, <laughs> I think that's our, that's I, you our know cue. What? I think the gentleman at the back with the beard also had a question. He's been raising his hand all the time. Okay, let, then let's uh, go ahead, but can you make it a question? Uh, please, thank you. Thank you so much, Andre, for, for giving me this chance to ask. Uh, my question, to be brief, is about form and writing. Uh, it seems that you know, paradox and irony are these two elements of writing that guard against writing itself becoming an unproblematic home or a place of unproblematic arrival. And so it can maintain kind of the element of exile. Uh, but have there been moments in which you've experienced writing or the act of writing or even the genre of a novel as being too unproblematically final, too unproblematically bound as a unit, and therefore you've retracted from writing? Have there been you know, phases of, of um, you know, considering writing itself to be a nationalism uh, in a metaphorical sense? Oh, th there have been times in my life where the writing was too easy, way too easy. And this is one of the contradictions that I'm forced to live with. Um, Call Me By Your Name was a novel that wrote really itself. It was written in three months, three months and a half. Uh, it was very easy to write. I didn't bother with rhythm. I didn't bother with cadence, with style, with whatever it was. It just <laughs> wrote itself, almost to my shame. Here I am struggling with every paragraph of everything I've ever written, struggling with paragraphs for a whole day, sometimes two days, with a paragraph. And suddenly there's this book that writes itself to my shame. So it is it, the most uncharacteristic thing I've ever done. What happened to me that made me write this book so fast and to be sort of totally consumed by it? I have no idea. But obviously something was going on that made me love writing it and love finding the, the story. In other words, love. So, oh my God, this is what they'll do. This is terrific. Uh, and uh, this, oh, the, what is he going to do with that fruit? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, and, and, and oh my, no, really? Uh, <laughs> I mean, things like, the, I have no idea what was going on with me. But, uh, you know, people would say, dinner is served. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming. Uh, but it was an amazing thing. So, but when you consider, for example, another essay I wrote called Lavender. Lavender took probably two months to write, and it's only like 10 pages long. And yet it's the thing that I love the most, all right? Uh, because I struggled with it. I didn't know what it was about. I had no idea where I was going. I had to give a speech on something uh, spiritual. And I chose lavender because it seemed fun. And, and, and I had no, by the first paragraph, I had no idea where I was going to go with it. And, and every paragraph, every line was a struggle. And there are scars all over this, um, this essay, scars that I can see, you can't, because you're just the reader, okay? But uh, there were all kinds of changes that I had to make. And eventually, it was finished. And I don't know that it ever finished, but it was an artificial end. And um, people use it now to teach um, essay writing. And yet, for me, it's a big joke, because it was the most imperfect thing I've ever written, though I love it the most, okay. I'm sorry? It's in a book called Alibis.
another title that it should be problematic. Why would I write a book called Alibis when I'm looking for a home? Alibi, of course, means elsewhere. Andre, Ben, thank you so much for your, your testimony. And um, we're going to need to whisk Andre off shortly, but I imagine there's a few people who would like to greet you. But let's take this moment to thank our two speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.